Hello, Julian. Hello, Mike. Hey, what have you been up to? I've been reading about how you can get salmonella to treat cancer. What? Yeah, tell you what, let's get the guy on who's done the research into it. Have a chat to him. Hi, I'm Mike Brampton. And my name is Julian Ho. Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. And here Hello, he is. how are you going? We're doing, We're doing excellent. Thank fine. you very much indeed. Fine. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So the way it works, our sort of grape to be, if I understand that to be the correct translation of raison d'etre, our grape <laughs> to be is that we just chat. And uh-huh. during that, we'll find out a little bit about your work, about what makes you tick career-wise, about who the real dog fam is, and and have a few jolly jinks and laughs along the way. But we, we like to start off by, by really delving deep. Sorry, Mike is sometimes a bit uncomfortable with me asking these sort of questions right at the start. Do you want Mike, me? Right. Do, do, stick, you, stick it to me. Is that all right, Mike? Do you want to ask? You're, you can word things better than me sometimes. Uh, that's fine, Julian. Okay, no worries at all. I think it's probably one of the hardest questions we have to ask. And he, he continually does this. He defers it to me. And I, I can understand why. But one of the one of the questions that our listeners and our viewers really do want to know, Doug, is do you want me to just come straight out with it? I think it's easier. It's easy. We, we beat around the bush too often and it builds up all sorts of expectations. It can't okay. help. Okay. Doug what what is your favourite bread? My favorite bread. So that's a fair question. And I right. think I'd, I'd probably have to go. It, it's a challenging question to answer. Actually. It's not uh, easy. Not easy. No, and actually, two out of the three people who live in my house have celiac disease, and the one who doesn't is me. So, actually, good, serious, honest to God bread is a rare commodity in my household. So, I have, I think, perhaps a bit of a, an extreme appreciation for good bread because uh, of how it's so frequently denied me. So, I, I have to say that probably. The good old fresh French baguette would be very high up on my list. So the crustier, the better. Good choice. And I feel so sad for my other family who can't enjoy the same anymore, as do they. So is this this a guilty pleasure then? Do you actually feel guilty about this? I do. Whenever I go somewhere, you know, when I travel for work or whatever, you know, I tend to just load up on everything I can find that has gluten in it. <laughs> just to get that fix out of the way for when I return home and all of a sudden I'm deprived. But I do feel a bit guilty, I got to say. Oh, that's brilliant stuff. Yeah, and it's all about the crust for me. So never cut the crust off my sandwich. No, that's That's the best part. Yep. So, All right, thanks for thanks for getting that one out of the way. That was really important. That's it. We, we can move on from that now. We can move All on. All right, we're done. See you. Thanks. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Th- thanks for coming on. Doug. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, the, I I do actually have another burning question that I really want to get into with you, Doug. Oh, all right. Because I had a quick look through some of the papers that you have produced and a prestigious author, and obviously being involved in the veterinary world as we are one word just jumped off the page at me to start with, which was salmonella. Oh, yeah. And then to see the use of salmonella to target cancer cells, and my mind just went kaboom. Yeah. I really want to get into that, and then I'm wondering if we can then work backwards 
to piece together the mind that has put that work together. Essentially working yeah. backwards through the elementary tract of your life. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's going back quite a ways. So that's work that I did during my postdoctoral fellowship more than 20 years ago, actually. Really? Wow. And I wish that I could say that I was the brains behind the whole thing, but we were actually working with a small uh, pharmaceutical company that was now defunct, who really was the the group that sort of capitalized on this observation that facultative anaerobic bacteria like salmonella mm -hmm. like to live in tissues that are hypoxic, for example, where there's like a soup of necrotic whatever and things like that that they can grow in. And really the only place in a living host where you find a lot of necrotic or hypoxic tissue is likely to be in a tumor. Most mm. normal tissues don't have that. And so even if you take regular old salmonella, you culture it out of somebody's feces and purify it and inject it, it can actually have some anti-tumor effects. But as you might imagine, there are some pretty big downsides to that, right? So yes. there's endotoxin, there's all those other things that would make a, a person horrendously ill if that happened. And actually, if we want to go on a real tour of history, 100 years earlier, there was a guy who was injecting people with bacteria on purpose because of their anti-tumor effects. So this was late 1800s, early 1900s, a guy named William Coley. He was a surgeon back in New York City. It was really the first non-surgical cancer therapy that was ever discovered. And he killed yeah. some patients. He cured some patients. Radiation came along. Mustard gas came along. That thing fell by the wayside. But then again, it experienced this, this resurrection in the late 90s kind of thing, which is quite interesting. So this particular so he, salmonella... He'd observed, sorry, he'd observed that some people with cutaneous tumors that got infections recovered from those tumors. Absolutely. So as yeah. you can imagine, this is like in the area where antisepsis really wasn't much of a thing. So like everybody who had surgery got infected practically, right? Mm. Um, and But he was so impressed with these observations he made of these sort of nosocomial infections that were occurring that again, he started injecting people on purpose as a for unresectable tumors, which was quite interesting. So back to the salmonella thing. The particular salmonella that we were studying was actually modified in two ways for safety. So one is its its endotoxin is actually really attenuated. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't cause nearly as much of that cytokine release and fever and all those kinds of things as regular salmonella does. And the other thing is that it was modified so that it can't live in normal tissues. It can't live on surfaces. It can't live in the environment. It can only live basically in, in areas where there are high levels of purines, which are two of the new DNA nucleotides. Okay. Once again, if you're living in a sewer drain, you're not going to find a lot of purines. Um, if you're living in normal tissues, again, they're not necrotic, they're not anything, you're not going to find a lot of purines. But in tumor tissues, there happens to be a lot of purines. So these two things actually increase the tropism of the bug for tumor tissues, and um, also, again, decreases the likelihood of seeing a lot of side effects, which is pretty cool. So the study that we did, so the, the company that we were working with did a bunch of mouse studies. They gave it into mouse tumors. They gave it intravenously into mice and saw some really interesting things. And my mentor at the time, the, the famous Dr. E. Gregory McEwen, was tapped by this company to potentially do some studies in tumor-bearing dogs. And then again, he gave that project to me as part of my postdoc. 
we were doing the same thing. So this was not intralesional injection. This was IV injection of live salmonella bacteria. Sound pretty scary. And I actually found it was pretty well tolerated. We were able to culture salmonella bacteria out of tumor tissue in about 40% of dogs that we treated, but it disappeared from the blood very rapidly. And they had reams of data in normal dogs showing it never appeared in the feces or anything else like that. So super safe for the environment and for the owners and things like that. And yeah, we saw some very interesting anti-tumor responses in a handful of dogs. Not the majority, but in a handful. Interesting. And since then, there's actually been a couple of other studies in dogs that have used some kind of genetically modified bacteria. So there's a group that injected clostridium spores into tumors. And again, once again, an anaerobic bacterium likes to grow in hypoxic areas. And then there's a group that actually used a modified listeria as basically a way to, to deliver a vaccine yeah. to try and stimulate an anti-tumor response using intravenously administered listeria. And that was a really neat study. That was a really big study in dogs with osteosarcoma that got done. But the unfortunate problem with that was actually they found that in a small percentage of patients, they could actually culture live listeria out of them, mm. even sometimes months after the final treatment. And they were worried that would be too much of a health hazard to really pursue further. It looked really interesting, though. Yeah. Many years ago, this would have predated CRISPR technology. Were you using oh, blue good slits God, yeah. or other vector types? Oh, in other words, how they did the genetic attenuation? Yeah. Yeah. So that was probably plasmid-mediated, old-school site-directed mutagenesis kind of stuff. And again, the company did all that stuff. I was just a dog doc, <laughs> effectively, <laughs> for that study. And But the thing that's really neat is that, that it's coming around again a little bit. Way back when, even 20 years ago, I was really thinking, this is interesting as a standalone treatment, but really what I thought it was going to be most cool for was as a vector for gene delivery, right? Yeah. It goes right to tumor tissues. Bacteria are really big. And so you could pump a pack a lot of genes in there. So you could put cytokines or, or any kinds of other things in there and really have them secreted by the bacteria just where you want them. So I always thought that was where we were going to see this end up being the coolest. Mm -hmm. And actually one of the guys who was with the company a long time ago is now in faculty at uh, California State Northridge here in the U.S. And he's actually started resurrecting this, again, specifically looking at some new things that you can stick into the salmonella that the salmonella that could can then produce that mm -hmm. might make it work a lot better. And we're actually very keen to start some in vitro and potentially some mouse studies pretty soon with some of those sort of next generation versions of this bug with the eye towards, of course, maybe sometime in the future, seeing if we could do some additional studies in dogs. Really exciting stuff. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a friend of mine working with herpes simplex virus, looking to mm -hmm. optimize delivery of, of anti-tumor uh, genes and genetic material. Yeah. Obviously, retroviruses have been the uh, the holy grail for many years, haven't they, of, of interposing allogeneic material. This people is... don't like to give those to people, right? Because you can accidentally get viral integration into the genome at spots you might not want and things like that. That could actually yeah. end up making a tumor worse inadvertently. But mm. what you bring up is really interesting. So we've been talking a lot about bacteria, right? But there are actually quite a few 
approved products out there that are actually what are called oncolytic viruses. Yep. So these are viruses that you can shoot right into tumors that actually can cause a pretty profound um, anti-tumor effect. And there's a sort of a nice um, added benefit that you can stimulate the immune system when you do that. So there are a few of these products that are approved for different human tumor applications, actually. Um, yeah. So it's not only bacteria that you can do this with. People are doing the same thing with viruses. They are, and they're doing it with a combined effort as well. So I saw a, a research project a while back that was looking to, uh, to, to take the bacteria. Now, it, they weren't talking about similar. I can't remember what they were using, but they were looking at a... Sorry? Anthrax. Anthrax. Anthrax, yeah. <laughs> Yes, no, I think it was a. I think it was a bacillus of some Good. sort. They were looking to um, to take these low oxygen tension seeking bacteria that would then insinuate themselves within the necrotic center of, uh, of tumors, and then fire bacteriophages at them. Oh, and, and the, the the bacterial cell death they were hoping would stimulate uh, an even bigger immune response. Oh, that's a really interesting approach. I like that. <laughs> I missed that one. You know, yeah, the, the, I like it. the explosion of the grenade on site, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Doug, I threw out one of the one of the the most controversial names there, and you went yes when I mentioned anthrax. Oh yeah, no, isn't it great that we can potentially take these damaging and pathogenic organisms and find ways to repurpose them? Yeah. I think that's awesome, right? Incredible, yeah, yeah. 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 Absolutely. I don't think anybody's going to be doing that with smallpox anytime in the near future. But with some of these other things, sure. I think it's great. <laughs> Difficult to get the license to do that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, probably. And, and scraping up a sample might be a little challenging, too, unless you know the right people, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so so your, your group, your d- department at the university is very actively involved in, in, in oncology research. Isn't it? You have quite a few projects. I was looking at your website earlier. Quite a few projects yeah, ongoing. But the main I mean, part is the cancer service you have itself. That was the start of the whole thing. Yeah. So so the, the way this whole thing started uh, way back 30 years ago was these two guys, Dr. Steve Withrow and Dr. Edward Gillette. One of them was a surgical oncologist. One was a radiation oncologist. Really were doing other jobs when they first got here. Steve was a general surgeon. And, and Ed was started off in the radiology department and they came together and said, we really need to do is start treating cancer in animals. And you're right. So this entire thing started out in the clinic and they started a cancer clinic. And at the time it was just the two of them. And then not too much later, radi- a medical oncology came on board and, and they built up this clinical thing over the years. And one of the things that that Steve especially was really a complete master at was really doing what he calls friend raising. So really building up a network of, of folks who really trusted him and who really became very friendly with him, some of whom had considerable financial means. And mm-hmm. uh, over the 30 years or so, we've really been the beneficiary of a lot of those relationships that have allowed us to not only build our own wing of the building, but really build up the clinical component of what we do, but also actually build up a very large laboratory science component to the work that goes on here too. So we have eight laboratories just within the physical section of the cancer center that are all doing, I don't like to use the term basic science because that makes the physicists and the chemists really pissed, but doing laboratory (laughs) research, really primarily focused around animal cancer, 
And some of that is animal cancer for animal's sake. And then part of it is animal cancer as a translational model to help us answer questions about people as well, kind of thing. Well, you have this one cure mission, don't you? Yeah. And that's, so the one cure component of this is very specifically targeted at supporting our canine and feline clinical trials initiative. Mm-hmm. So we do a lot of other things here. Again, we do bench science and we do regular clinical care. But yeah, the clinical trials component of what we do is a very important part of that. And uh, right now, the clinical trials team consists of two certified veterinary technicians, a master's level coordinator, a veterinary intern, a, a faculty member, actually, who's board certified in veterinary oncology. And then actually one of our six medical oncology residents rotates one at a time through the clinical trials service as well on four-week blocks. Eight to 12 weeks a year of their entire residency is spent only taking care of the clinical trials patients, which is a really unique learning opportunity, I think, for them duplicated at a lot of other centers. And the One Cure mission is really to try to provide funding to support that infrastructure. Even on the human side, these sort of large clinical trial centers are almost never self-sustaining. They just simply can't function without some kind of institutional support. And we've been able to be very successful philanthropically at providing that support. And that's what One Cure is all about. And we are pretty close to having the whole the whole operating expenses for the for the clinical trial service endowed. So in perpetuity, which is really exciting. That's fantastic. What was it that brought you into the team? Oh, so when I started here about 19 years ago, that was already one of my big research interests. So I split my time between clinical research and also running a bench science lab. And one of my hopes or one of my aspirations for my job here was really to try and build up the the clinical research portfolio and capacity of the cancer center here. Mm-hmm. That's been part and parcel of my 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 job description and my goals since I got here in 2004. And I'm, I've am i been very pleased to see the way that program has grown. And I'd love to, to be able to take all the credit for it, but it's really been a group, a group effort. And again, my position as the director of clinical research is much more kind of administrative. The biggest thing that I do is I serve as the point of first contact for yes. people from the outside who might be interested in collaborating or sponsoring research that takes place in our patient population. And we'll have an initial meeting and I'll sniff them out and see if they pass the smell test. And if if what they're proposing is so far out there that I don't think this is going to work for us, or if it really just doesn't fit within the interests of the people, um, the people in our group here, some people come to us and think that we do everything for free. Yo, you just give us the drug and we'll, yeah, we'll take care of everything. Don't worry about it. That's not the way it works. So sometimes they get some sticker shock, And then once we pass that initial test, if it does seem like something that might be a good fit for us, for a lot of these things, I try and identify somebody else in the center who might be a good uh, kind of partner, depending on their interests and their availability. And that could be tumor type specific or, Mm -hmm. oh, this is a a novel device that we want um, our surgeons to try or a novel imaging agent or whatever. Different people are going to have different expertise around that. And I try and guide guide them and see if they're going to be interested in that way. And then some of them I sort of keep myself, right? So if there's something that I'm particularly interested in, I don't pass that on. I might work with the the collaborator, the sponsor, and develop that myself. So it's a little bit of little bit of both, but that's probably the biggest role that I play is just filtering out the 
filtering out the weird stuff <laughs> and yeah. finding the right people to move forward with the stuff that's not weird. And that sort of fits in with our, with our portfolio and our interests. Right. Do you, you still get to wear a lab coat? <laughs> this is horrible. Okay. We're all veterinarians here. I can tell you, I, there's all, two situations in which I wear a lab coat. So I wear a lab coat if I'm having my picture taken or if I'm being videoed or interviewed for something <laughs> and if I'm euthanizing a, a pet. Those are like the only two times that I wear a lab yeah. coat. So yeah. my regular day-to-day, I still do work in the clinic, the regular clinic, just seeing patients and teaching students and residents about 12 weeks a year. But I'm not a guy who tends to wear a lab coat very often. And I think I've advanced far enough in my career that I can't be fired for violating some of the biosafety <laughs> rules. I still do shy away from the open-toed shoes, but the lab coat usually sits on a hook in my office. The well, best place that's, for it. There goes my next question because you obviously don't miss it because you're still doing it. So, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, I think that the 12 weeks, about a quarter of the time, is like the sweet spot for me. Many of my colleagues will spend a lot more time in the clinic than I. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great. I, I love the fact that they, that they really enjoy doing that. 12 weeks is perfect. I have so many other things that I need to be doing, mm-hmm. especially running my lab and things like that, that I do find it hard to do a lot more than 12. But I felt like if I do a lot less than that, I start to become a liability. So I don't really remember who the people are or where the where the toilets are. I don't know how to fill out the form. <laughs> I don't know how the medical record systems work. And basically somebody would have to just follow me around and help me all the time. So 12 weeks is enough that I don't get rusty. It's not so much that sort of all the other things that I'm supposed to be doing suffer. So it works out really well, actually. And the other reason that I wouldn't really want to put that by the wayside is I really do think of all the work that I do, whether it's clinical trials related or whether it's in the laboratory, is really with trying to keep my eyes on the clinical prize. So what are the clinical problems that I actually observe every day? And are there questions that I can ask that might help to answer those clinical problems? I feel like if I took myself completely out of the clinic, I would lose sight of that a little bit. And I wouldn't really remember what are the issues that I run into that really could use some help or use some new approaches? And, you know, the fact that I'm able to do both, I think really helps me to keep fresh eyes on the problems I should be focusing on and the interesting questions to ask. Yeah, it's interesting you say this, the clinical prize. Because I, think I, I, I started off, I, I, I sort of did your career in, in a much more diluted form, but backwards. So I started off at the Institute of Cancer Research doing retrovirus research and then became a vet and so when i was messing around with retroviruses i had very little idea of what they did to to people to animals very right. little and i wondered having qualified whether i went back to that but i didn't want to because i thought actually no i, I want to see the, the, the bigger picture i want those animals and those stories and things so i think you're right that's the clinical prize isn't this looking back to see how the work you do, the research you do, affects those family units of their pet and the owners as well. Who oh yeah, if had cancer or may get cancer. Absolutely, I don't think it's I don't think it's impossible for a PhD trained scientist to ask really interesting and relevant clinical questions. It's, I just think it's a little bit harder to keep again to to keep your eyes on the clinical prize yeah. when you're not down there in the clinic routinely seeing the patients seeing the tumors that they've got and stumbling and running out of things to try and really needing to dig deep and look for alternatives. I think that's where a lot of this comes from. But one of the other sort of hats that I wear for part of my time is I do 
co-direct a training grant that is very specifically gauged towards giving PhD students exposure to translational research. So these students are actually paired with, in this case, usually an MD, so human doctor mentor, to get them a, a, a legitimate human clinical experience. A couple times a month, they actually go into the clinics with their human MD mentor. They attend rounds with their human M MD mentor, really with the idea of trying to instill in them a better sense of the, the actual clinical problem that their laboratory is mm -hmm. working. And I think that has the potential to be so valuable partly again for framing their research questions, but also to allow them to have familiarity with the vocabulary in the clinic yeah. a little yep. bit more. So it's easier for them to have conversations with clinicians. And both of them can talk a little bit of the same language, uh -huh. which it can't be bad, right? The more communication you can facilitate, the more opportunities for collaboration there are. I yep. find this fascinating. So what you're saying is that some of your vet colleagues are spending time actively working in the human environment and the human field. Yeah, so this has been exclusively trainees, so veterinary trainees who are uh, pursuing the PhD. Mm -hmm. And again, part of what we're able to, to give them is this clinical experience, but it actually goes beyond that in that even just straight PhD students that have no medical degree whatsoever are actually afforded the same opportunity. And I would argue that it's for those particular students where the potential payoff is the best, is the greatest. Because, you know, if you're a veterinarian, you know, even if you're currently in the lab doing your PhD, you have some of an under, what of an understanding of what the clinical problems are and what a patient looks like, even if it's an yeah. animal patient. But a lot of these PhD students, they have no clue, right? So um, I really think it's for them that this kind of opportunity has the potential to be the most useful and informative. Yeah, it's a really neat program. And once again, wish I could take credit for it. I'm just like one little one little cog in a big wheel that that's doing this. I'm really only responsible for minding the veterinarians that are in that program. And there's a whole castle of straight PhD students who are somebody else's problem. I, I suspect you're downplaying your role quite a bit there. But um, um, I, I don't want to I don't embarrass you, but you there is a personal aspect to to your interest in cancer, isn't there? I, I try to downplay that too. So yeah, we, so what you're talking about is I have a, my wife and I both actually have a history of cancer personally, like in yeah. ourselves. That's absolutely true. And people like the idea of the story that, oh, I had cancer when I was in school and it was such a transformative experience that I decided I was going to dedicate my life to trying to eradicate <laughs> this horrible disease. It makes for really good copy, right? People like to hear that idea, but <laughs> I wish it was that dramatic. It really wasn't. I, from prior to vet school, so I actually worked in a microbiology lab as an undergrad, really liked the yeah. idea of research in general, quote unquote, whatever that means, and really yeah. thought going into vet school that I wanted to probably find some way to incorporate research into my career. And I, I had a lot of different interests going through vet school. I was interested in um, exotics. I was interested in fish medicine, actually. I, I briefly was interested in uh, equine um, medicine and surgeries, all those kinds yeah. of things. And then after my first year of veterinary school is when I was diagnosed with lymphoma and actually had to take a year off of school to be treated. It was 10 months of, of chemotherapy. But going into it from the, the very first day, one of the first things that my, my personal oncologist said is, 
the particular form of lymphoma that you have has a 98% cure rate. This is going to be a really inconvenient year for you, but you're probably going to be fine. With that in mind, again, it wasn't one of those, oh my God, life-changing things, near-death experience. It was really just an enormous inconvenience. We, there's, a term, there's a term that someone I know coined. It's an embuggerance. Oh, I like that. It was quite the embuggerance. Yeah, quite absolutely. Embuggerance. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the one thing that it did do was really just wake my mind up to the idea of oncology. So right. I hadn't really thought about oncology prior to that. I had this year off with not really a lot to do to occupy my mind. And one of the things was that I, I wonder what veterinary oncology is like. I've had this like personal human <laughs> oncology experience. Maybe that's a thing. So <laughs> looked around at, at my particular institution. They were actually going through a transition phase where a quite well-known veterinary oncologist had just departed the program and really they hadn't refilled her position so there was a vacancy or a void in oncology at the University of Pennsylvania when I was a student there. So really hadn't had any direct exposure at the time. But yeah, so it, it did pique my interest, I think is probably the best way to say it. More so than once again, this near-death experience, I'm going to reorient my life to focus on this problem that I personally had or anything else like that. Yeah, but there was a little silver lining there at the end of it. My wife, a few years earlier, actually had been treated successfully with thyroid cancer. So she had surgery for a thyroid tumor at the age of 20, 21, something wow, like that. Gosh, gosh. And I, I now happen to be on my second cancer. So I, I now have essential thrombocytemia, which is a very low-grade and indolent uh, platelet leukemia, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's been reported in dogs incredibly rarely. It does exist. And once again, one of the first things that I found out after that diagnosis is the median survival time post-diagnosis is 31 years. <laughs> so once again, it's another sort of inconvenient thing. I have to take some yeah. pills, though, that kind of thing. But it, in all likelihood, it's probably not going to substantially limit my my lifespan. And it's just something I'm going to have to deal with. Good. Well, so I'm very fortunate yeah. that both of the tumors, tumor types that I've had have been very manageable. So that's been great. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed that that is the case. Amen. I'm really hoping that I've exhausted my supply of neoplastic diseases that's going to occur to me and <laughs> that two, two and I'm out and that's going to be it. <laughs> but we'll yeah, you have more than your fair share. Yeah. I sure have, yeah. <laughs> Are you a good patient? Oh, I am the best patient you've ever had. Really? Yep. So the one of the things that's really fun is that my current hematologist uh, and I are members of the same cancer center, right? right? I'm a member of the University of Colorado Comprehensive Cancer Center. So is he. So actually, when I go in for my quarterly rechecks, we spend about two minutes talking about me and then 15 minutes talking shop. He asked me, how's it, how, how it's going? I asked him how it's going. What's new? Yeah, it's a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> I don't think many people describe their oncology consults as a lot of fun. But... Yeah, no, he's yeah. a great guy, and we have a good time when we when we get to to meet up for an appointment. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm trying, I'm trying desperately to steer away from from some of the more intricate details of cancer because Mike gives me looks and, and and he knows where I'm about to become very interested and start asking technological questions and Mike. I, I get it. Yeah. Interested in it, and so I want to sort of broaden it out a little bit and, and talk about the decision. So you were a microbiologist initially, and then you you decided to become a vet. 
I wish I could call myself a microbiologist. I was an undergraduate working in a microbiology lab. Right. Right. Yeah, and actually the the main project I was working on happened to be a salmonella project. Go figure. I was doing that. And then however long, seven, eight years later, I ended up doing another salmonella project that was completely unrelated. Small world. Very small world. It's weird how that happens though, isn't it? That's It sure is, right? What are the chances? That's what happened with me. That's exactly what happened with me. Do tell. I was working on, on a project assessing whether we could accurately assess the oxygen concentration of blood um, using photodiodes. So mm. by measuring the colour of blood, would that accurately tell us the oxygen concentration? And then seven, eight years later, suddenly there's a thing called a pulse oximeter. <laughs> yep. And that's been my path all the way through with anaesthesia, wow. with pulse oximetry, and that's the path that I've followed. And it's, I, I suppose it's almost a, a path of least resistance. But that's it was originally exactly where with, I started. With the crab hemolymph, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I was measuring the colour of crab's blood. Oh, wow, cool. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, and and I, like I should say, at the same time, Mike was also one, one of the world's fastest skiers. And I wanted to move from there to your skating, because I think you, you've got a similar... Uh, I don't know whether you're one of the world's fastest skaters, but you're into speed skating, aren't you? I was for quite a while. So I had an injury a couple of years ago that kind of sidelined that. But that was so it goes back actually a lot further than that. So when I was a very small kid, I, you know, did figure skating. And one of my main sort of recreational activities as a teenager, a preteen and a teenager was hanging out at the local skating rink and those kinds of things. And then the inline thing hit when I was late undergraduate, early vet school, and I gravitated toward that and was one of these weird people that would skate around the city, jumping onto things, jumping off of things, mm-hmm. rolling up and down the stairs, all those sorts of what what's called aggressive street skating. <laughs> um, and yeah. So in the city of Philadelphia, there was the a parkour. Yeah, there were 60 of 80 of us that would just roll through the city doing this as a huge group and it was really wonderful really fun great group of people good exercise and then and i always actually thought that speed skating was incredibly cool i'd done figure skating i'd done this aggressive speed skating thing i played a little hockey but the one sort of skate related activity that i had never really done was speed skating and it just looked so amazing but i never really had any sort of opportunity to do that until i moved here to fort collins and it turns out just by dumb luck that there is a former olympian Olympic speed skater who lives here in Fort Collins, who was offering classes at the local rink. These are uh, would be what oh, what's called short track ice speed skating. And I saw that and was very interested. But at the time, I had very wee tiny children at home and really couldn't justify doing that activity and taking myself away from the kids until my eldest got old enough that that she could join me. And then once she so got to be great, I said, hey, what do you think about speed skating? And she said, yeah, that sounds great. So then all of a sudden it became a father-daughter activity, something that I could I could get away with without uh, without taking myself out of the family unit to do it. And so that that's what started my career was actually ice short track, which I did purely recreationally. This has always been a fun and fitness thing for me. Um, and through that, I actually discovered that there was also an opportunity to do inline speed skating which I then took up. And again, for quite a few years, I was pretty hardcore. I was training four days a week, sometimes Mm -hmm. five days a week. And late into that, there was actually a very elite coach who moved to town for inline speed skating, 
who coaches at the world-class level. Mm -hmm. and, and I had an opportunity to train with them, which was just amazing. I was not anywhere close to being in their league. I was like the slowest guy in the pack, but it was just, again, just an amazing opportunity. But again, just about two, three years ago, two things happened really. So one was, I again, I hurt myself, which really made it hard for me to continue at that level. And then the other was, I really started to get scared that I was going to take out one of these elite skaters and wreck their careers. <laughs> Falling, accidents, that's sort of part and parcel of, of this. It just ha crashes happen. And I just really felt like I could have ended up being a liability and and really potentially jeopardized the career of someone who was heading to the world championships. So right. I got a little gun shy about continuing to train with these folks because of that. Altruistic view. Yeah, I, I just never would have been able to forgive myself if that happened. Yeah, so those things really put a little bit of a kibosh on that on that part of my career. And I haven't really been able to find something to replace it yet that I enjoy as much. I would really like to potentially revisit it, but I just have to find some way to even rehab my ankle even more before I think I can really get back out there and not jeopardize jeopardize its health, unfortunately. So you gave up speed skating in terms of jazz? Oh, no, that's another thing I've been doing forever. So <laughs> actually, when I was in high school, I... And for a very brief period in college, I was torn between trying to do music as a career and, and going the veterinary medicine route. And I had a bunch of people who I respected a lot who really basically said in no uncertain terms, if you can envision yourself doing anything other than music for a career, go do that. <laughs> and this came from oh, my, really? this came from like some of my musical idols at the time, and the way I ended up thinking about it, too, is I can be a veterinarian and play music as a pastime, but I can't be a musician and do veterinary mm. medicine as a pastime. So yeah. I did have a little bit of a kind of crisis uh, uh, of a crisis of conscience or I, I rethought my choices again in college for a brief period of time because I was so busy playing music as an undergraduate that my studies were really suffering. I did incredibly poorly in school for that brief period of time. I was out till two or three in the morning every night gigging, playing gigs. I was making mm -hmm. re reasonably good money. And I said, maybe I actually really should be thinking about doing this. And then I came to my senses and buckled down on my studies and, and backed off on some of the music. And once again, very similar to the speed skating story, I really had to put that to the side for a veterinary internship, residency, postdoc, yes. early periods of time in my career when I had small children at home. But again, that's something that over the past, you know, five, seven years, I've really been able to resurrect. And it's been just wonderful. I'm really so happy that I was able to bring that back into being part of my life. And again, I, I owe part of that at least to my daughter. So in addition to convincing her to do speed skating, she actually was a very serious musician for all the way up through high school and honestly had a lot more talent than I did. And uh, as a result, I had actually had an opportunity to do a lot of musical things with her. So again, not taking myself out of the family unit, but making it a participatory thing. And that was really wonderful, too. That's great. What instrument? So I started out just like so many kids do. I started out taking piano lessons when I was very young in grade school, picked up the trumpet in middle school and played that actually all the way through into vet school. But in late high school is when I started playing the electric bass, and that's become my main instrument. 
Uh, and that's quite a transition. Yeah, it certainly is. But it was just something I always thought was really cool. I didn't have any other real reason for wanting to do it besides it just seemed like a really neat instrument. And uh, yeah, that's really become the main thing that I do these days. I still own uh, a trumpet. Uh, I take it out once a year or so and try and blow a few notes. It's very hard. Yeah. That that kind of thing just does not come back uh, very easily yeah. after you put it is down. It, the embouchure, yeah, isn't it? The embouchure just does not come back. You need to build those muscles up and it can be very challenging. But uh, yeah, but the bass playing thing has been just a really great, uh, really great outlet for the last six or seven years for me. And right now I play in a jazz big band, the 18, 20 piece, full 18 or 17 horns, 15 horns, plus a rhythm section. And most of the people I play with are pros. So they're either retired music professionals or they're high school band directors or those kinds of things that are looking for opportunities to play. And so that's, you know, I'm definitely not the best in the group (laughs) by a long shot. But I always like that. I like actually playing with people who are, you know, a lot better than me. It really makes me Try to rise to the occasion. You, you, you up your game, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. So that's been a really wonderful experience. And then I play in a rock and roll band that <laughs> specializes in TV and movie themes from the 1960s and 70s. Okay. Good eras. Good eras. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's amazing. So, you know, the James Bond theme and Scooby Doo and <laughs> you know, tick off the anyone that you could probably think of that's well known enough that you would think of it, we would probably play. And yep, yeah. they all have videos that go along with them. And the thing that's great about it is it's it's a universal language, right? It almost doesn't matter what kind of music you like to listen to. Those songs will be in your head and you'll recognize them, whether you want to or not, whether you like them or not. <laughs> they're in, they're instantly familiar. And I have one of those kinds of memories where so, like little weird songs are just always running around in my head. It's, it's been that way my whole life. So... Basically, I inadvertently had committed, I don't know, three quarters of the repertoire to memory, just just, just <laughs> randomly. So I literally, I, I went to the first rehearsal and I could play two thirds of the songs without wow. ever having to rehearse them. <laughs> just because these songs had been like percolating around in my brain my whole life. Yeah. So it was like an amazing outlet for them just to be able to actually play them with other people. It was hilarious. Just complete, completely ridiculous fun. I, I, can, ima- I can imagine the audition. Hey, guys, he knows the whole set list. Let's get him in. Yeah, no, they, they suggested two or three songs that I should be prepared to play. And it was like the, the theme to the original Wonder Woman from the 1970s. All right, I got that one. Uh, the themes to a, a, one of the TV sitcoms from the 1970s, Different Strokes. Got that one. Uh, yeah, so I had them already in my brain. I think you're being very self-effacing here, Doug, because if you started on piano and you then moved to bass guitar, and if you look across the board, Elton John's still stuck on the piano. <laughs> that's a big. That's all that he can play. Yeah, well, who knows what else he might be able to play that we don't know about? Obviously not well enough. He hasn't put it out there, has he? Yeah. He can carry a tune pretty well, and that's one thing I can't do. <laughs> You're being self-effacing. Are these recordings anywhere? Do you actually record? Do you produce content, as we say? Oh, in no, we've never put together a, a, a commercial recording or anything else like that. So I have some old demo tapes that I've amassed over the years, but that's really about it. And uh, sort internet fame on YouTube by with this latest band? No, I'm oh. afraid not. I'm a little self-conscious about that. It's good fun. 
or knocking back a beer and listening to, but that's really as far as it goes. And that's the only place I wanted to go. Otherwise, it doesn't become a hobby anymore, does it? Yeah, no, it's just, it's it's great pub music. That's all it's ever meant to be. It's a lot of fun for that. It strikes me, though, that you've got a whole side gig going here as a pub band or as a wedding or a school reunion band because you've got all of those catchy tunes that built the whole history. And, and the reunion thing is a really interesting idea because that's where you want to sort of harken back to the days of yore when all these yes. things were... Yeah, that's a very interesting idea. That's a niche I never really thought of. There we go. There must be reunions going on at your university all the time. Yeah. Well, one would assume that there are. There we are. A nice, quiet gig where you can get together and play in front of an audience. No pressure. All good. And, and yeah, to, start, yeah. to start it off, you just have to record a couple of songs and put them up on YouTube or Instagram. <laughs> yeah, one minute, a right. one-minute thrash of the James Bond theme or a one-minute thrash of, of whatever, and just pop it on YouTube and you'll get the bookings, you'll get the gigs. There's your new career. <laughs> there come. you go. I don't know. So, Doug, do you do much, uh, do you do much teaching still? So the, the large majority of the teaching that I do is not your typical didactic, get up in front of a class and do a lecture kind of thing. I do seven or 10 of those a year, the one hour lectures. So very minimal amount of that. But I do a lot of other kinds of teaching. So again, whenever I'm on the clinic floor, I'm constantly yeah. teaching the rotating vet students. I'm constantly teaching the interns and residents. Most of my teaching is, yeah, on the floor teaching. And then Again, in my laboratory, I manage graduate students, I'm a major professor for a bunch of graduate students, and I have some undergrads in the lab and things like that. So that's that's the kind of teaching I spend most of my time doing these days. Right. I love doing didactic teaching. I love getting up and lecturing to the students, actually. I love doing CPD. That's one of the favorite things about my job is getting to travel around and lecture to the vets and those kinds of things. One of the things, our particular cancer center, we're victims of our own success, right? In that we have five medical oncologists and three radiation oncologists and three surgical oncologists, and there aren't just aren't that many lectures in the curriculum to deliver. And over the years, I've passed on more and more of those to the junior faculty, where it's mm -hmm. very important for their academic success to be able to continue to do those. So I've really just kept a handful of my personal favorites that um, I'm loath to let go of. And yeah, the rest have been passed on to others. But yeah, I, I love doing that. And I really wish I had an opportunity to do more of it. You must miss that terribly. And picking up that you <laughs> wish that you had the opportunity to do more of it. Here on Veterinary <laughs> Rambling. I kind of set myself up there, didn't yeah, I? Yeah. Here you on Veterinary Rambling. Little spider's web there. We have a special section on Veterinary Rambling. It's called Six Imagine Second that. CBD. Have you come <laughs> across this, Doug? <laughs> I have, as a matter of fact, so oh. I'm not but this isn't com coming at me completely unawares. Oh, fantastic. So you're familiar with our 60-second CPD challenge, yes? A, a bit, I am. Okay. How do you fancy taking on the 60-second CPD challenge? Do I have a choice? No. Not really, no, sorry. <laughs> there you go, then. Okay. In that case, then, I'm going to set this up. Right, I've set up my timer. Okay. Now, I don't know if you've seen this, but I'm going to put a clock up here and that will give you your 60 second countdown. And we'd like to hear what you have to say. What is going to be the title of your 60 second CPD? Uh, the title of my 60 second CPD is You Can Fix Most Mast Cell Tumors. Excellent. OK, then, Doug, 60 second CPD on You Can Successfully 
treat mast cell tumors starting now. All right. Everyone knows mast cell tumors are very, very common, both in cats and dogs. And one of the things that a lot of people don't really respect is the fact that most of them are not bad. Most of them can be treated very successfully in the general practice setting. Let's start with cats. 85% of cat cutaneous mast cell tumors are benign. A little tiny surgery is all you need to do to effectively fix them. One and done, very simple. In dogs, most of them can also be cured with surgery. The tricky part is figuring out the ones that might be a little bit more challenging. So the ones that are growing very quickly, the dogs that are sick, the tumors that are ulcerated, the tumors that are in locations that are very, very challenging. What do you need to do before you think about surgery for these? The big thing that you wanna do if you're gonna do any staging at all is sample the regional lymph node. If that lymph node is negative, most of the rest of the staging tests are gonna be negative. Then you can proceed to surgery. Uh, we wanna try for wide margins. If you can't get wide margins, you should still do surgery. And more often than not, you will be successful. Wow! That was, awesome. that was absolutely spot on. Wow! Uh, Bang well, on! Well done. That was fantastic. There was a moment there where I thought you were going to go over. I, yeah, I did too. I, I thought, oh, no, make it. no. Make it. Oh, I could have gone brilliant. on for an hour. <laughs> and I would have listened for an hour quite happily. <laughs> Mars cell tumors are one of my personal favorites. I do, I'm primarily a surgeon, and a lot of my work is reconstructive surgery. Oh, yeah. And so I'm constantly looking for, for muscle tumors in awkward places. Yes. Oh, I can no. get it. But that was fantastic, Doug. Thank you. That was <laughs> really good. And actually, it, it is a really good point. Uh, a lot of vets do listen to this, hopefully. Expression rambling, so why wouldn't they? Don't give up on those muscle tumors and be sure that you give the owner all the options that are available. Primarily surgical, in my view. There are a lot of other modalities of treatment coming out, or what will come out rather than mastinib. And my mind's gone a blank on that one that uh, causes uh, necrotic destruction of the mast cells. But Oh, um, Stelfanta. Stelfanta, yeah. 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 So that's, that's you hit the nail on the head. There are drugs that are approved for the treatment of mast cell disease in the, in the EU and Palladia all over the place. There's Stelfanta you, that you can inject in there, but... Well, you're basically marketing drugs for a surgical disease. And that's very challenging. And none of those other things, I think, can supplant blade excision. But one of the things, I don't know if you've experienced this, but in the past five years or so, there's been a weird sort of change among the kind of folks who reach out to us for consultation that they get this idea that, oh, if I can't get, I can't get the wide margins that I want on this mast cell tumor. So that means I shouldn't even try surgery, right? No, it doesn't they- mean that. If you can get three centimeters, take three centimeters. If you can't, take what you can get. And yes. a lot of times you'll be fine. Maybe just forewarn the owner. This is one where maybe we're a little bit more likely to run into issues with some tumor cells left behind. And it might be coming back to you and saying we should do some other things. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do surgery. And I'm really trying to get rid of that misconception in the general vet world that, oh, you can't do surgery for a mast cell tumor unless you can do these big margins. No. Unless you get half good. his skin off. Yeah. Right. No, Especially right. in a cat. In a cat, you don't need any margins, and usually they don't come back. <laughs> no, mind you, they're usually right on the eyelid or somewhere. Uh, oh, yeah. Like that, thing, so. You don't need three centimeter margins. You'd have yeah, to absolutely, cut yeah. off the head and treat the neck as an open wound. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because we, we were talking about this before we came on air. Really, mm-hmm. and that is yep. the sort of the almost—I won't say degradation—it's the wrong word—but the turning away from basic general skills. 
and the resorting to a potentially very expensive referral to somebody else when if we turn the clock back 10 or 20 years that would have fallen right into the domain of a general surgeon yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's wonderful that we have this large cadre of specialists to whom we can refer. Yep. But it is a shame that it's narrowing the practice of some of the family veterinarians. They're maybe not taking on as much as they used to, and they and that they could have accomplished very handily just because they're feeling like, oh, well, that's really in the realm of the specialist. Maybe I shouldn't manage that diabetic cat. Maybe yeah. I, whatever yeah. it is. Maybe I shouldn't do that cystotomy to remove those stones. Maybe I should send them to a surgeon. Yeah, no, I do think that's a sad, a little bit of a uh, a sad sequela of this blossoming of, of specialties that we have. I think um, new graduates are becoming very risk averse. Yeah. I think they're also, they feel costed in a, a very prescriptive role where they're comfortable doing vaccinations and general health checks. And as soon as they get out of their comfort zone, unlike perhaps our generation, they just thought, oh, I've got a friend who's told me how to do it. I've got a textbook. I've seen one of these before. Let's do it. There's a, let's get rid of it because otherwise someone's going to sue me. Yeah. Yeah. Especially here in the States. I think that is a little bit more of a concern. And I think a nice happy medium is for some of these things. You, I think you do have the potential to get in trouble if you don't at least offer the referral. You can certainly say, I do feel like this is something I could probably handle here. But yeah. you wanted to see a specialist, off you go. That's, that's fine. It's fine, yeah. And you know that, another, that brings up a really... No, go ahead. I was going to say, another one of my huge bugbears is this idea of, of lumpectomies, removing skin lumps. Oh, yeah. And I have so many times I've had to intervene with my junior colleagues when they say, oh, it's got lumps, let them remove it and send it off. And I say, okay, have you finally lacerated it? No. Okay. You've got a lump there that you're only going to be able to get a whole centimeter margin in that position with the amount you've clipped. Now, if that's a mast cell tumor, you've got one chance of getting it right. You can easily get more out if you clip further and plan. Let's pop a needle in and see what you've got. Okay, that's a mast cell tumor. Let's chat to the owner about some reconstruction here. Amen. Maybe Ten let's minutes. Take, yeah. Let's take a peek around that dog. Let's say it's a soft tissue sarcoma, right? Yeah. <laughs> we take a look in the thorax before we take that off so we're not dealing with you know you get back the report oh soft tissue sarcoma then you take the x-rays and oh yeah yes. there's that's already what'd you do the surgery for we didn't know what it was i love to avoid those kinds of situations and yeah i yeah. do a whole lecture that's one of the lectures i've actually kept for the students is what i call my dispelling the myths of of oncology lecture mm -hmm. And one of those things is the owner comes to you and they say, why do I have to do it? Why do I have to take a chest x-ray before surgery? Because surgery is pointless if there's already disease in the chest. Why do I have to do a fine needle aspirate? Why can't you just take it off? We might do something different. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I go through that whole thing about trying to anticipate the questions that owners are going to have or the, or the roadblocks that owners are going to have to allowing you to practice the medicine that you want to practice. And say, here's some strategies. Here's some things that you could actually explain yes. to them that might help you to make them understand why you want to do that yes. fine needle aspirate, why you want to take those chest x-rays, why you want to submit that thing that you just took up for histopathology instead of throwing it in the garbage, all those <laughs> sorts of things. Yeah, I, I love that lecture. And I think that's information that's so important and so practical for the you know, really, graduating. Really and actually quite consoling for the owners. 
most of the time as well. It shows that, that you know what you're doing, but that actually there is yep. a plan. And there's a worst case scenario plan, the best place scenario plan. Oh, yeah. If they want to get into the if-thens, you can go down that road and say, what if you don't get it all? Then what? Oh, all right. Here's the things that we would talk about. What if there's already spread to the chest? Here's what we would and wouldn't do. Yeah. I totally agree that if you've got the time, it can really help to have those discussions before you do the surgery so that there aren't a lot of complicated less clear and less pleasant discussions to happen to have with the owner if if you've done your job properly then then you phone them up mid-operation and say do you know i'm afraid as we thought there is something in the chest we we discussed this i think we made the decision that we're not going to go ahead and operate down that so we're gonna with your permission we little roof us up and then we'll chat about the next stage and it's no surprise there's no oh my oh bugger what do i tell them (gasps) oh no no. it's part of the process yeah oh i remember you told me that could happen i i understand yeah yeah Yeah, i think it's so helpful even if it only takes you 30 seconds you can just save a lot of distraught owners later on down the line yep it ends up being a time saver even if it doesn't seem like it when you start yeah 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 brilliant stuff i was gonna ask you a question julian Yes. Oh. Yeah, because Doug's delivered a 60, absolutely on the nail, 60-second CPD. Absolutely. A packed we, minute there. We have learned tons of stuff. Loads. Oodles. On all sorts of topics. Mm. And, of course, as a serious presentation, Veterinary Ramblings likes to be able to provide CPD to all of our listeners, if that's, if that's appropriate. But, of course, in order to do so, we need to issue a CPD certificate. Do you Do have one there, Julian? By sheer chance, I have. Oh, excellent. Imagine that. Have. So there we go. It's a certificate of oncotherapeutic genius. <laughs> and um, if you Lovely. look at this, so here we go. We've got, we've got a cat there, cast here with, uh, with a nasty squamous cell carcinoma. Nice. And as we know, we're going to make them look really quite aerodynamic as we uh, remove <laughs> those ears. And in, in this case, we remove the nose as well. Nice. Yeah. There is a cytological view of a mast cell tumor. Really granulated at that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a lovely <laughs> one. That. And it was on this pointer. And you can probably see right on the rump there. Yeah. Yeah. Not, nasty place to get. It's a big old tumor. Nasty place yep. to get a margin from. So I've done a very extensive clip. And this is a good old CSE. So a, a caudal superficial epigastric flap. Oh, nice. Pinnacle flap. Just. Cut from there, what straight back, covered it nicely, had a complete cure there. Excellent. Really straightforward. They rarely, if ever, break down. Nice, reliable tumor reconstruction. Now, a couple of extras there. There's myself and my kids skating, not speed skating, right? I knew you were going to bring up skating. They were, I, I took a picture there. Now, one of oh, them nice. is me using a little penguin to balance on. <laughs> but no, no penguins were injured in the making of this film. Excellent. <laughs> and, and I couldn't resist. I, I added this, actually, when you were talking about initially wanting to become a, a fish vet. They all going through that process. So I, I, I've got a picture of a shark here. <laughs> Sharks now, do get cancer, by the way. I know. I was going to say, it's a 
this is old wives' tale, isn't it? The sharks don't get cancer, but they've now discovered, I think, three naturally occurring cases of, of, of cancer in, in wild-caught sharks. Yeah, and the thing that's so funny, so I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, it was all about shark cartilage. So shark cartilage is a is the massive cure for everything. And it turns out, you know what the most common kind of cancer that sharks get? Yep. Chondrosarcoma. Yeah. Sorry, what was that? Well, I think their own cartilage probably isn't doing that good a job. No, no. <laughs> but there we go. So that's your CBD stupid. Thank you very much for for the knowledge we've gained by, by chatting to you. Yeah. Oh, that was loads of fun. Now, there's, there's one other thing that... Now, I don't know whether you go through this, Doug, in the States, but in the UK here, we have to... It's all very well receiving the CPD. It's all very well getting our certificate of the CPD. But in order to qualify as CPD, in the eyes of our erstwhile RCVS colleagues, governing body, sir... Mom, we have to reflect on the CPD. Oh. Do you have that in the States? No. Sometimes the CPD people are asked multiple choice questions. Mm-hmm. But again, those multiple choice questions are purely for self-reflection. There is not a minimum or maximum number which an attendee needs to get right. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Are you able to provide any sort of reflective question for us? I do have a reflective question, and I think its relationship to my CPD might be a bit tenuous. I hope that's, that's okay. Fine. That's fine. Yeah. We Here's don't my care. reflective question. Do clinicians and researchers both have to possess equal thirsts for knowledge? I will leave the audience with that. Interesting. Interesting question. I say if they don't, they're pretty poor examples of each but there we go i would tend to agree <laughs> might be different kinds of knowledge but if you're not continually learning new things i think it gets yeah. really boring really fast it does it does yeah. so, that's amazing that's amazing <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to go away and think about that one i think doug it's that'll, that'll keep me up tonight yeah, but <laughs> i'll tell you that i was asked that question in my vet school interview Oh, right. Uh And it was really strange because there are a whole bunch of us candidates sitting in a room waiting for our turns. And people would come out and we would say, what did you get asked? What did you get asked? And everybody else was, oh, where do you live? What are your hobbies? And I come in and I get, do clinicians and researchers both have to have equal thirsts for knowledge as my question? (laughs) So it seemed a bit unfair there. And I have to say, I don't think I had a really cogent answer at the time, but, and I barely made it into vet school by the skin of my teeth. I don't think that helped me at all <laughs> to answer that question. I think they had higher designs for you at that time. Abs- <laughs> absolutely. And it was obviously well answered at the time that enabled you <laughs> to go on and achieve all of the things that you have achieved and, and are achieving, which is a formidable, formidable thing. That's amazing. Doug, I'm, I'm ever so sorry. I have thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you this evening. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And I've learned so, so much, no, so much, and I, I look forward to speaking with you again. But our time, the, the sands of our time have, have just about run out. So it leaves for me to say that to our listeners and our viewers, if you've enjoyed delving into Doug's life here and you want more, get in touch with us. 
click like, share, and please, 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 if you want to help Veterinary Ramblings, subscribe. It really does make a difference to us. Big difference. More than I can describe in, in the two seconds here. But uh, all it leaves me to do now is to say, Doug, thank you so much for sharing your insight and some of your work and uh, some of your philosophies. Really enjoyed talking to you. On behalf of Veterinary Ramblings, thank you very much indeed. May your dog go with you. May your dog go with you. Ah, oh, thanks so much, guys. It's Cheers. been a lot of fun. Great pleasure. Thank, thank you very you. much thank indeed. You. Thank, thank you. you.